Well, how many of you guys know that the writer of uh, these three authors, uh, <laughs> man, it's going to be one of those days already, can't even spit it out. The author of these three epistles is essentially anonymous. Did you know that? It doesn't say anywhere in the letters who's writing it. It doesn't say this is John. You know, Paul writes his letters and I'll say this is, this is Paul. Um, but uh, uh, there's, there's no indication of authorship in any of these three epistles. The closest is in the second and third where the author identifies himself as the elder. So uh, that's all we know is this is from the elder. The elder. Oh, it's going to be one of those days. My tongue is not working. Father, I pray that you would just use my tongue as you intended to. I surrender it to you. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you'd make your word clear through me because apparently my tongue's not cooperating on its own. Hallelujah. But church tradition does say that uh, John, the Apostle John, wrote um, not only the Gospel of John, but the three epistles and also the book of Revelation. And just so uh, no one's confused, this is uh, John, the Apostle John, um, brother of James, son of Zebedee. Did you guys know that uh, Zebedee means thunder? These two, these two were the sons of thunder, which means that they were loud and abrasive. <laughs> Hallelujah. Um, but uh, but there's, there seems to be no real, real confusion or doubt that the Gospel of John and 1 John was written by John the Apostle. I guess in the early church there, there was some contention over who wrote the second and third uh, epistle as well as who wrote Revelation. Um, but there's certainly no disagreement that, that John wrote the first epistle. And truthfully, when you look at these from the internal and external evidence, um, there's, there's no argument that, that John both wrote the gospel and this one. And it's also obvious that the writer of all three epistles is, is the same people, the way that they talk, the verses, the, the phrases they use. So it seems pretty clear that uh, John wrote uh, these letters. And there's, there's actually a lot of evidence to support that. The internal evidence is, is one, the, the author of 1 John claims to be a witness of Christ. Um, he writes with an authoritative tone, which is something you would expect an apostle to write with. Um, there are similar themes of uh, vocabulary, theology, um, syntax, all of those things between the, 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 the Gospel of John and 1 John. And this is uh, A.E. Brooke, who is the author of a critical and exegetical commentary on the, the Johannine epistles, says that there are 51 parallel references between John, the Gospel of John, and 1 John. Something you might not have known, there's actually specific words that are only used in the Gospel of John and um, uh, 1 John. The, the word parakletos occurs only five times in Scripture, and that's in 1 John and the Gospel of John. And this actually is a, is a Greek word to mean the helper, the advocate. It's referring to the Holy Spirit. Um, John's authorship of, of 1 John is also attested to an external evidence as well. Um, the early church was consistent in ascribing John as the author of 1 John. There was no uh, argument about that, no confusion about that. And there's actually extra-biblical writings that point to John as being the author as well. So um, the, the truth is, is there's sufficient evidence for us today to conclude that John was the author of these letters. And like I said, the first John is not really contested much, but a second and third John, there is some contestation of who wrote it, but I still think that there's enough evidence for us today to conclude that John wrote all of those. Um, 
Tradition holds that this letter was written about uh, 90 to 95 A.D., um, after the Gospel of John had been written. But as I'm studying this, I found out that this isn't uh, really uh, solid either. There's some evidence that says that this could have been written as early as 60 A.D., the truth is, is that, that uh, these are one of the books that there seems to be a lot of questions about who wrote it, when it was written. Um, truthfully, we're going to find out in a second. We don't even know who it was written to. But uh, uh, I think based on the evidence we have, we can probably conclude that it was written between 85 and 100 A.D. And, and you guys are getting all the technical details. We're going to get into the, to the meat of what John was writing in a second. But this is good stuff to know. Um. We don't know who these letters were written to. Did you know that? There's no indication of who John is talking to in these letters. Nowhere does it identify the recipients. Um, one scholar said that it could be because of the persecution in Ephesus, which is where these, these letters are, are suspected to be written from, um, caused it so that there would be no indication that he didn't want to point people out and, and cause issues. So because of the persecution, that could be why we actually don't have any specific information to who these were written to. But we do know that he's writing to a group of churches that are in crisis. They are experiencing persecution. They're being attacked by false teachings. And that's what John is trying to rectify in these letters. You want to know something else that's interesting? Many scholars will argue this isn't even a letter. <laughs> it doesn't have the traditional greeting like a letter has. It doesn't have a traditional clothing, closing like a letter would have. If you look at 2nd and 3rd John, you can tell these are letters. He's writing to somebody. But 1st John, there is none of that stuff. The only thing that we do have that is letter-like is, is he does mention, I'm writing to you little children, a very non-specific addressee. But, but uh, I thought that was interesting. This, this might not even be a letter. This might have just been something that John wrote specifically for teaching to be handed out, not necessarily um, a letter to a specific church or individual people. But the one thing that we can see very clearly is the purpose of this letter. We know that the primary purpose was to assure readers of their fellowship in Christ and the reality that they had eternal life. It was to encourage them to grow in maturity. And then the second purpose um, was to warn against and to guard against false teaching that was coming in, false doctrines that were being taught to these Christians. Um, there were teachers coming in denying either the deity of Christ or the real humanity of Christ. We're going to see that that's what they were coming in and arguing against. And as you know, uh, several, uh, I think a few months ago, I did an in-depth teaching on, on the Trinity and the reality that Jesus was fully man and he was also fully God. And to teach something other than this is actually heresy. It actually separates you from the gospel because those things are necessary for the gospel to be true. And then others were teaching, were coming in and teaching that sin didn't really matter. Either sin doesn't exist or that sin doesn't affect one's relationship with God. And we think that that's crazy, but did you know that's happening right now, today in the United States? Um, a big part of the progressive Christian movement that's going on right now is to, to push sins under the rug, saying that they're okay. It's not a big deal. Homosexuality is okay. Um, all these things are okay. All these things that are clearly sin in Scripture, they're saying, oh, no, no, that, that's not sin anymore. 
And this is a real problem that we're seeing, but this is something that John was dealing with back then. People coming in and either saying that they weren't sinners, they never were sinners, they didn't have sin to be dealt with, or they were arguing that, oh no, it's okay, you can go ahead and sin, God still loves you. Which is only a parcel truth. God does still love you, but you should not sin. Amen? Hallelujah. So let's go ahead and get started in the scripture. 1 John 1, 1 through 3 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this is one of those, those first evidences that this was actually written by John. John starts out and points out to what he has actually seen with his eyes, what he has actually touched with his hands. John was there with Jesus. He knows the reality of what happened with Jesus. He understands that Jesus lived and then gave his life to pay for and grant forgiveness of all of our sins and to give us newness of life. He understood this better than anybody because he was right there. He saw it happen. And he was an eyewitness. This isn't, this isn't hearsay. What he's about to be teaching, what he's going to be reiterating to him is not something that he heard from so-and-so's brother's co- cousin's uncle's mother. He was there. He knew what was happening. And here he begins to refer to Jesus as the word of life. And he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's referring to Jesus. He used similar wording in his gospel. John 1, 1 through 4 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. This is the same theme that John is using, and his purpose is to let us know that Jesus is life. And he was manifest in bodily form, and that he and the other apostles were witnesses to this truth, to this reality. This isn't something that can be questioned because he was there. You ever had somebody try to question something that you saw or did, and you're like, I was there. You can't tell me what happened. I was there. I saw it. And that's what John's dealing with. I want you guys to know that I was there so that when I speak, you can understand that I know what I'm talking about. I know what I am about. And the reason he's doing this is he's actually refuting one of the false teachings that was coming in to his churches at the time. And that was that Jesus was the Son of God. That Jesus was the Christ. That Jesus was God incarnate. And that Jesus was the only pathway to eternal life. It's important that they understand this because believing otherwise could put them in jeopardy. It could actually put them in jeopardy of of getting wrapped up in something that's not the truth. Hallelujah. I think I bumped my thing and I don't know where I'm at now. Uh oh. (laughs) 
get out Google Maps, double check. Hallelujah. You know, they, they, had to, they had to understand this because the truth is, is if they, they, they didn't believe this, they would be falling in jeopardy of falling out of fellowship with the apostles and ultimately falling out of fellowship with the Father. That's actually what he's talking about here. He says that, he says, we're, we're, we're proclaiming this to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. This idea of fellowship can be understood as, as, as oneness in a community. It can be believing the same thing about something. It's, it's, it's an idea of, of having a common belief or a common thing to stand behind something in common. And this fellowship that they had was based on, the, on the, the apostles' teaching of who Jesus was and their response to that, proclam- to that proclamation by their faith. Understanding who Jesus was and responding by faith was what allowed them to have fellowship with one another. If they believed something different, it starts to put cracks in that fellowship because not everybody is on the same page. This is why, as a church, we can have fellowship with other churches that don't necessarily believe all the exact same things that we believe. Now, uh, for those of you who have been here for a while, you know that we do a lot of stuff with the Springs Church. We have a great relationship with Pastor Jeff and his, his team over there, and, and they're a Baptist church. There's a lot of things that we don't believe the same on. One of the big things is, is, is we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that they're still today and active today. Um, they don't. But the thing is, is that's not something worth breaking fellowship over because, as I like to refer to it, and kind of what John's referring to here, the purpose that, that we have to be on the same page with is who Jesus is and how, what the path is to salvation. I like to refer to these as heaven and hell issues. If we're on the same page with the heaven and hell issues, then the other stuff is... is is not important. It's not big enough to cause us to not be able to work together. As a tr- now, we can't have fellowship with somebody that believes in a different Jesus than we do because we're not teaching the same thing. We can't have fellowship with people that think that, that, that uh, there's other paths to salvation other than Jesus because we're not on the same page. But if, they believe in, if we believe in speaking in tongues and they don't, that's not something worth tearing the fellowship of churches apart. Understanding what John is trying to teach, though, is essential to being a Christian. And that is that Jesus is the, is, is the eternal God incarnate in a human body. That he lived and subsequently died for our sins. He rose again so that we could have newness of life and only through faith and faith alone through him is a person saved. And that's what John is trying to get. If you have somebody coming in telling you, Something is different. If they come in and say, no, Jesus wasn't God. Jesus wasn't the Christ. Do you see how that could have implications in a person's salvation? Could you see what that would do to a church? As they've been taught by the apostles who were there. They have firsthand knowledge and said that, no, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus did die for your sins. And if somebody came in and said something different or they brought to you a different Jesus that wasn't those things. See, that's the problem that we see today in a lot of different cults and religions is, is they, they use the name Jesus, but it's not the same Jesus. And that can get you into a mess. And it's such a believable lie because it's so close to the real thing. But the reality is, is we have to be on the same page here. He wants them to know, listen, 
I want you to know that this is the things that we've seen and that we have heard, and we proclaim it to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed fellowship with God. Amen? And he continues on and he says, and we are writing these things to you so that our Joe, our Joe, our joy, that's <laughs> what happens when I get thinking ahead too fast. <laughs> Joseph, Pastor Joseph just made the sermon. Hallelujah. We want our, our Pastor Joe to be complete. It's good to know John was thinking about you all those years ago. Hallelujah. First John, you guys are messing me up. You guys need to zip it. Let me get through this. First John 1 John 1.4 says, And we are writing these things so that our joy... <laughs> Somebody read this for me. Somebody read. Our joy may be made complete. Hallelujah. Somebody got Siri. Siri, read 1 John 1.4 for me. Hallelujah. You know, this is what John was writing to this group of believers. He says, So our joy may be made complete. You know, this wording doesn't just indicate the believer's joy, but he's talking about John and the apostle's joy as well. Matter of fact, it probably indicates that more so than the latter. He's talking about our joy, the apostle's joy. He wants, he's, I'm writing these things to you so that mine and the other apostle's joy may be made complete. And if you think about this phrasing, it almost could seem kind of weird. Why would John and the apostles be worried about their joy, particularly when these Christians are facing persecution? They're going some, through some rough times. But the truth is, for any Christian leader, and not just the apostles, any Christian leader, seeing those whom you are teaching, those who you are serving, those who you are helping to grow, to see them grow, to see them mature, to see them grow in their, their faith in the Lord and become stronger Christians, that brings us joy. I know that one of the, my, my, the greatest things about being a pastor is when I see people grow, when I see them mature, that brings me so much joy. It's one of those things that makes it all worth it. Because there's a lot of things that aren't great when it comes to being a leader. John says something actually very similar in 3 John chapter 4 or uh, verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So John is trying to clarify these teachings because it'll, it'll actually solidify his joy knowing that they have the truth, that they're living it out, that they are going to have salvation, that they're going to mature and grow. But the truth is, the believer's joy is under assault as well. If you think about this, so often when false teaching makes its way into a church, when it makes its way into a group of believers or people, it begins to attack their joy, it begins to attack their certainty, it begins to attack their hope. When someone is coming to these Christians and telling them, that, you know what, Jesus isn't the Christ, that can begin to destroy, they're like, wait a minute, that's what I put my hope in. If he's not the Christ, am I really saved? Am I really forgiven? Am I really set free? And it begins to attack their joy and their hope. They can begin to question when somebody comes in and say, oh no, he's not the way to eternal life. How would that affect us if we found out everything that we believed was wrong? Someone began to teach us something else. But John wanted them to be secure in what he had taught them. 
He wanted them to have a solid foundation, to not question, and to, to make sure that they have that hope. Because that's so important. The, 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 one of the wonderful things about Christianity is you don't have to wonder if you're saved. You can know. And you can know with certainty because Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what he said he did. And we can trust in that. So John doesn't want their faith to be shaken. So that's why he begins writing this letter. And in verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John begins to remind him, remind them of the message that he had already preached to them. And it's almost like a shifting of gears, too. Because previously we were talking about who Jesus is and that John was a witness of it and that, that Jesus was God and, and he was the, the pathway to eternal life and, and being on the same page that allows you to have fellowship with him. And then he begins to deal with a different to topic, which was this idea of sin being marginalized or minimalized in the church, other teachings that was coming in. He's beginning to, to defend against this false teaching that has also seemed to become prominent in this church. And truthfully, I see it prominent in the churches today. And that is that sin has no consequences or no bearing on your relationship with God nor your, or nor your salvation. As believers, we need to have a correct view of sin. We need to understand it properly. And this understanding comes from a right understanding of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul dealt with the same subject. Romans 6, 1 through 2 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? As believers, we have to understand the whole purpose of Jesus Christ going to the cross, giving his life for us, was not just to forgive us of our sins, but it was to set us free from the bondage of sin. We are so much more than forgiven. The purpose was to make us brand new so that sin didn't have any hold on our lives at all, so that we could be completely free of sin. And if we understand this, then we should understand that sin should have no part in our life. Jesus wasn't some get-out-of-jail-free card. It wasn't so that way you could live however you wanted to live, do whatever you wanted to do, and go, oh, God will forgive me. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to set you free. For the believer, sin should be rare. I want to say that again so you understand that. For the believer, sin should be rare. And to intentionally sin is to not grasp the reality of your salvation. That's the point that John is making here. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. It doesn't say God is light. And in him, there's only a little darkness. In him, there's just slight shadows. It says, no, there is no darkness at all. This means that there's no place for sin to be in, around, near God at all. There's no place for it. It doesn't have an opportunity or a place to exist. And this includes those who regularly practice sin. 
Now, I'm not talking, I want to be real clear, I'm not talking about the believer that falls. Sometimes we slip, sometimes we stumble. The important thing is that we get back up. The righteous man falls seven times and he gets back up seven times. But there are some people who are making a conscious choice to sin. It's not a slip up. It's not a fall. They weren't resisting temptation and just didn't, didn't stand strong enough. These are people that are making the intentional choice to sin. That puts you in a precarious position. I believe it puts you in a position where you, you don't truly understand the reality of salvation in your life. And it's one of those things that you should actually take a look and begin to examine your heart and to see where you stand. And I love this metaphor of light and darkness. It's one of my favorite metaphors in the Bible because it's so easy for us to understand. God is light and in him there is no darkness. Well, that makes sense. If you go to a completely dark room and you turn a flashlight on, you turn a light on, what happens to darkness? It disappears. Darkness actually can't stand up to light. There is no option. When light hits darkness, it goes away. It disappears. It's destroyed. Darkness is always destroyed in the light. You flip a light on in a, in a room, the only place where there's darkness is when there's something in front of it hiding it, creating darkness, something blocking the light. But darkness is always destroyed in the light. And that's the only direction it works. How many of you guys have went to Walmart and picked up a, a dark light? You know, uh, something you turn on that, that exudes darkness and pushes light away. It doesn't exist. There is no situation in which darkness overcomes light. Matter of fact, the truth is, darkness is just the absence of light. And because God is light, there is no room for darkness. And we need to understand this as Christians. Sin is darkness. Sin in us is darkness. And it cannot coexist with the light. And this is something that I want you to really think about if you ever find yourselves rationalizing sin in your life. Somehow thinking that it doesn't matter or God will just forgive me anyway. Like I said, I'm not talking about slipping up. We all do that. Christians slip, Christians fall, we stumble. But we get back up. We don't choose to stay where we're at. Because the problem is, is you get put in one of these two camps that John is going to talk about. In, verse, uh, chapter, or in, in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Over the next few verses, John is really going to hammer home the error of declaring sin has no impact in your life or that somehow sin is okay. And he's going to contrast two very different groups of people. The two groups that he's going to talk about are those who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness. As we go through this, we need to understand that these aren't the same group of people that he's talking about. There's two distinct groups. There's this one, people that walk in darkness, and then you're going to see in the next verse, it's people that walk in the light. These are people that aren't saved and versus people that are saved. 
Those who walk in darkness believe that they either don't have any sin or sin doesn't matter. They're walking in that lie. You've probably met people like that. Pastor Joseph likes to tell a story. He was talking to a guy. He says, uh, you know, Jesus died for your sin. He's like, what? I'm not a sinner. That's walking in darkness. But those who walk in the light recognize that they did sin and that they have a need for a Savior. Now you're going to see what the heck John was talking about when he was pointing out that God has no darkness in him. He is only light. Because it's fundamental that we understand that if we walk in darkness, we cannot have fellowship with the light. And we know that John is both trying to encourage believers in this letter, but he's also trying to deal with false teachings. Those who would say that sin doesn't matter, that you can do whatever you want and still be a Christian. You can live however you want and still be a Christian. But John says that anybody that is walking in darkness those who claim that there is no sin in their life. Now remember, this is unbelievers. These are the ones walking in darkness, claiming that there is no sin in their life so they don't need a Savior, or claiming that sin's not a big deal. See, what we have here are people that are claiming to be Christians, but they're not. They're walking in darkness. And he says, these people, anyone that's walking in darkness, living as sin doesn't matter, they lie if they say they have fellowship with God. Because this means that these people who are intentionally ignoring the word of God, claiming that sin, uh, what is clearly sin is not, if they claim that they have fellowship with God, that they're lying. That's, we see this in the progressive Christianity group right now. They're, they're, people are saying sin isn't sin. They're living however they want, yet claiming to be Christians. These people are walking in darkness because they don't understand what the Word of God is saying. And that's what's happening in this church here. These churches that, that, that John is speaking to, these are Christians, and they have other people coming in claiming to be Christians, teaching something completely different. They're claiming that sin is not sin practicing and even championing the very thing Christ died to set us free from. But now John skips over to the other group of people. He says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sins. This is that other group. These are those who walk in the light. Now, this doesn't mean that they always walk perfectly. Like I said, um, one of the, the commentators, as I was reading, actually many of the commentators reading said, you need to notice something here. It doesn't say that they walk, um, uh, this says they walk in the light, not according to the light. And there was a difference in phrase because if we walked according to the light, that means that we could never mess up. We had to walk perfectly. And the truth is, as Christians, that should be our goal, right? We're supposed to look like Jesus. Jesus lived perfectly. He is the measure and statue, stature of what a Christian should look like. That's who we're supposed to be measuring up to. And if you guys have, have listened to me speak any time, I believe that as Christians, we can live without sin. That is why Christ died. I believe it's possible. That's what we are pressing towards. I also recognize that it's unlikely. <laughs> So I don't want you to, to hear me wrong. I'm not saying that if you're saved, you're never going to sin, and if you do sin, you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying, because the truth is, we stumble, we fall. John's about to deal with that in the beginning of the next chapter. He says, that, little children, I want you to know that if you do sin, you have an advocate. So I, I recognize that we still have the potential to sin, and likely we still will. 
but I also recognize that the purpose of Jesus Christ giving his life so that we could be made brand new. And I believe it is possible. Now Paul said, I've not attained it yet. Certainly neither have I. But that's what I'm pressing on to. And every day, and every week, and every month, and every year, I sin a little bit less as I become more like Jesus. But the truth is, sometimes Christians do sin. And like, even in the next chapter, I said John's going to say you have an advocate. That's why I believe that John is actually speaking of two different groups of people here. Those in the light and those not in the light. Because those of us who are in the light, if we sin, we have an advocate. But if you're walking in darkness, you don't have an advocate with the Father. But this group of people who walk in the light have fellowship with one another and he's speaking of Jesus. One of the things that you can read this through is talk about fellowship with one another. We're talking about the fellowship of believers, but I don't think that's what this is talking about. He says, if we walk in the light, that's one of the others. As he is, that's the other other. So fellowship with one another is talking about fellowship with Jesus. When we walk in the light, we have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And ultimately, the blood of Jesus his son, I'm sorry, God, not Jesus, but Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin. We have fellowship with the Father because we walk in the light, because we put our trust in Jesus. And as a result of this, Jesus cleanses us from all of our sin. But then John pops back to the other group. But if we say we have no sin, remember, these are the group that that are walking in darkness. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You know, for all those people that are walking around this world that haven't put their trust in Jesus Christ, if they argue that they have no sin, they're just deceiving themselves. They're just confused. And in this case, what's probably happening is a group of Christians are coming in and and they're trying to teach something else, saying, well, you don't need to be saved. You don't even have sin. Sin's not a big deal. Look, you can still be a Christian and not believe that you've sinned. And John's saying, no, you need to understand. If anybody ever comes in and they say that they have no sin, they're deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. They're not telling the truth. They're saying a lie. I mean, this is one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit, right? Right? John talks about this in his gospel and says that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world concerning sin. And he clarifies that in, in verse 9, John 16, 9, he says, concerning sin because they don't believe in me. The whole purpose, uh, one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin, not, not pointing out all your failures, but rather pointing out that you have sin, that you need a Savior. He convicts us for not believing in Jesus because we need a Savior. Well, the problem with believing that you don't have sin is you start to believe that you don't need a Savior. If you believe that you've got it off, and that puts you in a precarious position. Because no matter what you believe, you need a Savior. You can say the sky is purple all day long, but it's still blue, usually. Sing that you have no sin causes you to not believe in Jesus because you don't have the truth because you're telling yourself a lie. And if this, this is, 
It's such a scary place for so many people to be in because you're trying to share the gospel with them and they, they, they believe that they don't have sin or they don't need a savior. But the problem is, is when you're like that, if you don't have the truth in you and you're deceiving yourself, you can't have fellowship with God. They're stuck in that place until they recognize the truth. In verse 9, he says, but if we confess our sins, now we're back to the other group, those walking in the light. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're a person that says you have no sin, how can you have those sins forgiven? But if we recognize, we walk in the light, we've put our trust in Jesus Christ, we recognize that we have sin, then he is just to forgive us all of our sins. See, this other group, those who walk in the light, we recognize that we were sinners. I use the word were here because how many know that sinner is an identity? You don't, you're not a sinner because you sin. Otherwise, Christians that, that sin from time to time would be sinners. But Christians are not sinners. When we get born again, our identity changed. The Bible never refers to a Christian as a sinner. It always refers to them as saints. That's, what the, that, that's our identity. When we get born again, we are now a saint, even if sometimes we sin. And somebody who's not born again, even if they could somehow never live or they could somehow live their entire life without sinning, they would still be a sinner because that's the identity that they have. Now the truth is, is the Bible's pretty clear that if you're not born again, you are a slave to sin and you have no option. You will sin. But that's why they sin, because they're sinners. They're not sinners because they sin. It has to do with identity. So Christians, those who walk in the light, we recognize that we were once sinners, but we put our trust in Jesus Christ and we're no longer sinners, we're saints. We recognize that sin was wrong and needed to be dealt with. We listen to the Holy Spirit who is ministering to us, recognize that we needed a Savior, so we call on Jesus and he forgives us of our sins. We confess that we had sin and he forgives us. But this isn't also just at the beginning. As Christians, we need to recognize that we confess sin as well. Whenever you sin, you need to confess it. Now, I'm not talking about you need to go find a priest or you need to go find a pastor or, or really anybody to confess to unless you've sinned against somebody. The only time you need to confess your sins to somebody is if you've sinned against them. Then you go deal with it with that person. But otherwise, there's no requirement to confess your sin to any person. But you do need to confess it to God, to deal with it, and to not ignore it. Ignoring sin is not how you deal with it. I also want to make clear that sometimes it's still good to confess your sin to other people because sometimes you might need help, someone to walk alongside you. But the truth is, is that, that as Christians, if we sin, we need to confess our sin. We need to go to God with it and thank him for forgiving us of that sin and to deal with it. Now, one of the things that I've had people wonder about is, well, if this is true, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive them, does that mean if we don't confess our sins, he won't forgive them? And where this can run into a real pickle is, is you go, what if I don't remember all my sins? What about before, I, I mean, what if it happened so long ago before I was born again and I have, to, I have to confess every single sin I've ever had? And that's not what John's talking about. 
which is a good thing because if it was what he was talking about, only those with perfect memories would be able to get into heaven. So I don't believe that John's talking about that you have to have a laundry list of every sin you've ever committed and if you don't confess it to God, you're not going to be forgiven. The truth is, God knows what you did and when we ask for forgiveness, when we put our trust in Jesus, that was the purpose to take care of that. But if you do sin, you still need to confess that to him. So the question is, well, when should you confess it? As soon as you recognize that you've sinned. And just go ahead and, and tell God you're sorry. Ask him and thank him for forgiveness. See, that's the thing is I think one of the things that's helpful to understand is, is what the idea of confession is anyway. Did you know that confession is so much more than just admitting that you've sinned? Another way to, tr to think about confession is to say the same thing about something. So when we confess our sins to God, we need to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. And what does God say? God says it's dealt with in Jesus, that we're forgiven. To say the same thing is to also recognize and call it what it is. Recognize that sin is evil. It's never okay. We can never rationalize sin. It means to understand that sin is paid for. To understand we're forgiven. One of the most influ influential things, Pastor Von Gerald, who since passed away, but he ever said it was, a, it was actually a men's retreat we're on. And he said he used to ask God to forgive him when he sinned. He would confess, God, forgive me. And he said he heard God begin to speak to him every time. He said, I already have. God, forgive me for this. I already have. Lord, please forgive me for this. I already have. And he finally recognized that he needed to stop asking God for forgiveness and said thank him that he had already been forgiven. Say the same things about your sin. You are forgiven in it. We still confess it. We still admit it. We still deal with it. But we recognize that we're forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done. We say the same thing about sin that God says. That it's evil, that it's bad, that it has no part in our life, but that it's been paid for if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. And then we end in verse 10 here. He says, because if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. He's reiterating what he just said a couple of verses ago, dealing with these two groups of people, and one of them is one that doesn't walk in the light, that says that we don't have any sin. If we say we have not sinned, and the truth is, as a Christian, if you want to say that you have not sinned, how can you be a Christian? If you've not sinned, you have no reason to put your faith in Jesus. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. You know, when we say we've not sinned, we make the Holy Spirit a liar when he ministers to us saying, hey, you need a Savior. We make Jesus a liar because we say that when he came and gave his life for us, we say that's not what you did. And we call the Father a liar because he's the one that implemented and created the plan of salvation. And when we say we've not sinned, we call him a liar for doing what he's done. Because if we've not sinned, we have no need for a Savior. But if we say these things, those who walk in the darkness that say that they've not sinned, and remember, Paul is talking about people coming into, or not Paul, uh, John is talking about people coming into the church and teaching these other Christians this. Like, hey, I'm a Christian, but I have not sinned. John's saying, well, they're not really Christians. He says they're calling God a liar. They're calling Jesus a liar. And the truth is, his, their, God's word is not in them if they are saying these things. 
They don't work together. They're mutually exclusive. If there is no sin, there's no need for a Savior. Amen? Like I said, we need to understand as Christians the importance of living free from sin. We've all sinned. We all know it. That's why we put our trust in Jesus Christ. But we were born again. But we weren't just saved to be forgiven. We were actually set free. And we need to recognize that sin is evil. It has no place in our lives. It's true, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We needed that Savior, but when we were born again, a new spirit was placed inside of us. We got a brand new life. And we are free from that sin. But if we ever deny that fact or claim something else that puts us in a precarious place, to claim that our sin isn't really that bad or we don't need a Savior puts us in a position or we might not have a Savior. If you've already said yes to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you're practicing sin in your life regularly, in any area of your life, you need to evaluate that. You need to understand the position that you're putting yourself in. And we choose to do these. Like I said, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about slipping up. We all do that from time to time. And as we'll see next week, we have an advocate with the Father. We're still forgiven. You don't lose your salvation. You just get back up. You repent. And you move forward. But if you're intentionally living in sin, that's a different story. And it puts you in a, a, a dangerous position. I believe that if you are intentionally living in sin, you are consciously choosing to sin. Not succumbing to temptation, but choosing this is my lifestyle, then you need to examine your heart and find out where you're really at, what your relationship really is. The good news is if that's you and you recognize you're in that place, it's not the end of the world. You just repent. Put your eyes back on Jesus. If you recognize that you're doing it, you stop what you're doing, you repent, you confess, you thank God that you're forgiven and you move on. And you don't do it again. But church, and I recognize I'm preaching to the choir in here, but anybody that's listening online, or if it is you in the church, let's, let's make sure that we don't fall into that second group of people who are walking in darkness. Let's continue to walk in the light. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.